you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the first reading of the day, the ninth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, these words in particular. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This is our text. An old story about a man who one time went to his doctor complaining about having terrible neck aches and repeated headaches and recurring dizzy spells and the doctor examined him and he was unable to find any kind of physiological disorder that would be causing the symptoms and so he just attributed the problem the man was having to stress and he sent the man home. Well, the man was convinced that his doctor was wrong. He was convinced that, in fact, there was something so radically wrong that he only had months to live. And so he determined that these were going to be some of the better months of his life, and he decided that he was going to quit his job, buy a fancy sports car, and fill his closet with all kinds of new clothes, with new sport coats, with new shirts, with new anything and everything that he needed to really go in style, he said. In fact, he even went to buy himself a couple of dozen tailored shirts, the finest shirts that money could buy, and the tailor measured him and broke down size 16 neck. And the man said, well, wait a minute. I always wear a size 14 neck, and I want a 14. Well, sir, the tailor replied, I'll make what you want, but if you wear a size 14 neck, he said, I can guarantee you that you're going to have terrible neck pains, throbbing headaches, and recurring dizzy spells. <laughs> That's probably just a story, but it has a point. And the point is this, if we as people so easily and so readily and so proudly and arrogantly misdiagnose so many of our physical and physiological disorders as we so often are inclined to do, you can be sure that we do the same thing, and even to a greater degree, with spiritual things. Because of what we are, born in sin as we are, being the sinful people that we are, it's very likely and indeed certain that we're going to misdiagnose spiritual conditions as well. And that's exactly what St. Paul did in our text for today. His name then was Saul before his conversion. Saul, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple, went to the high priest the Acts of the Apostle says, and he asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any Christians there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. We've got a desperate man here, don't we? A religious zealot, to be sure, a man who thought he had it right, but who indeed had it very wrong. And as is the way with desperate men, 
They more often than not misinterpret things as he did the Old Testament scriptures that told him very clearly who the Messiah would be and who and how this Messiah would fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Paul, Saul, of all men should have been able to see this clearly, but as is common with man, he misinterprets things, he misunderstands things, he misdiagnoses the problem, and he sees the problem as being the followers of Jesus. It wasn't the followers of Jesus at all. It wasn't the group called the way then at all that was the problem for Saul or for anybody else. It was Saul himself where the problem was. It was Saul's own resistance to the revealed word of God that was now being and had been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. It was Saul's resistance to the will of God, which was for his conversion even. It was his resistance and disbelief in the saving work and in the resurrected reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have persecuted those early Christians until the day that he died. He could have killed them young and old, hundreds and thousands of them. It would have made no difference because subversion of God's work won't work. Only one thing could relieve the stranglehold that was there upon Saul's life and his existence. Only one thing could relieve him of that which gripped him so tightly about the neck, and that one thing was conversion, was becoming something that he wasn't. And you can be sure that Saul himself was not the man who was going to be able to make that conversion within his life. And that, my friends, is what this world needs too. It's what each and every individual needs. It's a universal problem. Conversion. Becoming what we aren't. And it's something that we cannot accomplish of ourselves. There's something wrong with every child born into this world, with every man and woman who lives in this world, and the Word of God identifies the problem, and the problem is something that we of ourselves can do absolutely nothing about, and the problem is sin. Sin that attempts continually to subvert God's will to convert. Man tries to deal with the universal problem of sin that's about him, so we have all kinds of social problems, and we have social programs that are designed to solve those social problems. They never do. They might curb them, they might contain them, but they don't solve them. We have mass education, we have scientific research, we've got psychological therapy and government bureaucracy and military defense and all kinds of law enforcement, all human attempts necessary, indeed as they are, to curb the consequence of sin in our world and what it otherwise unraveled would do to dismantle all that God has and all that he's made and so he tells us to give do honor to the government that is over us, for example, to obey our parents, to seek out the means that are here for us that God has provided to deal with the consequences of sin in this world in which we live. But the world can only deal with the symptoms of mankind's sin. It doesn't deal with the core problem, with the root of it all. It can't change the nature of the human heart because only God's word can do that. And that's why 
As long as the sun rises and sets, society will be frustrated in its endless search for solutions to mankind's problem, even as people who will be, people will be as they expect that government is going to be able to solve the basic innate problems of man, which it won't. And like Saul in our text, man misdiagnoses the problem. Man is inclined to think the problem to be out there, out there in the environment, out there in the social system in which we live and learn and grow, that the real problem is out there, and if only we can isolate ourselves from the out there problem, we'll be just fine, not so. Not so because the problem is in here. The problem is in the human heart. Out of the heart, our Lord Jesus says, proceeds evil, slanders, murder, fornication, you name it. Out of the heart, in here, in the heart that is by birth and nature alienated from God, that's what needs remaking. That's what needs refashioning. Create within us a clean heart, O oh God. And only God can do that. And you know how he does it? Just as he's done it with each of you, with me, with millions of other Christians in the world today as he has for millions in the past, as he did it for the Apostle Paul, he does it in the same way all the time, every time. He does it through converting the human heart, through making it something that it wasn't, through making it anew. And interestingly, it's often said that Saul was converted, that he had this change of heart on the road to Damascus. You've heard that before. Actually, that's not technically speaking true. The truth is, is that his conversion experience only had its beginning on the road to Damascus. The conversion of Saul, like all conversions, comes in the form of two sequential divine actions. The first action being that of God striking him dead with the law that God gives. Striking him dead with the law, followed then by the second divine action of God raising him from the dead by creating within him a living faith in the crucified and the now risen and living Lord Jesus Christ. Two sub substantive and sequential divine actions taking place in order to bring about a conversion of the human soul. Saul experienced the gavel of God's law as it hammered his haughtiness right out of him, as it hammered to a devastating death, his haughtiness right there on the road outside of Damascus. Paul the zealot who thought so much of who he was and what he was doing now hammered down. Paul thrown from his horse. Paul placed by God right on the anvil with God's hammer striking blow after blow, breaking every self-righteous bone in Saul's body. An experience that he later reflected upon in his preaching when he would say to one of the churches to which he wrote, quote, the law kills. Saul knew it by his own experience, his experience on the Damascus road. The law kills, he said, but then he said, the spirit alone gives life. The law of God has done its work. It killed Saul's self-righteousness, a condition 
Interestingly, it's so often represented in Scripture as being blindness. And how significant then that our text says, when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. The law made Saul aware for the first time of his blindness. Before that time, he was blind and didn't know it. Now, because of the work of the law in his life, of God hammering down his self-righteousness, now Paul opens his eyes to see nothing, and he knows that he's blind. The law made Saul aware for the first time of his blindness in the most dramatic way. He was literally so blind that he had to be led into the city to a street called Straight, where he would be met by a man whose name was Ananias. And then in Damascus, in Damascus, not on the road outside Damascus, but in Damascus at the house of a certain early believer, a Christian, interestingly, rather ironically, named Judas, there in the house of this Judas, he would meet another early Christian named Ananias. And that's when the conversion of Saul to Paul, sinner to saint, would take place. Having received the blinding death blow of the law outside of Damascus, Saul is prepared to receive the life-giving blessing of the gospel now in the city where Ananias, directed by God, places his hands upon Saul's head, absolves him of all of his sins, and Saul gets up and he's baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and he's told then what the Lord would have him do. And now, interestingly, the blindly self-righteous soul becomes the Christ-centered, the cross-focused St. Paul, who not only believes what he has been told and what's been revealed to him, but he's blind no more spiritually, and now he eats with his brothers in the faith, and he's strengthened by it to make his way right away to the nearest synagogue where he begins to boldly confess Jesus Christ before men, even giving them convincing proofs. Scripture tells us that Jesus of Nazareth indeed is the Christ promised of old. God at work, you see. Whether it's today or 2,000 years ago or more, God at work through his word and through his sacraments to convert, as he did then, Saul, the persecutor of Christ, to Paul, the persecuted apostle of Jesus Christ. Indeed, this man, the Lord said, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. Your conversion, your conversion from Satan to Christ. And it happened when you were baptized and there you denounced Satan and all of his works and all of his ways, remember? Your conversion from Satan to Christ, from sin to his righteousness, from death to life was no less a conversion than that of the blessed apostle Paul on the street called Straight in the city of Damascus. No less a miracle than what happened to him there. But I don't remember that change happening like 
St. Paul did, you might say and think, it surely never happened to me like it did to Saul, no blinding lights, that is, no, no voice speaking, no angelic visitation, nothing so dynamic happened when my conversion took place. Perhaps I'm fooling myself to think that I was converted. Reminds me of the, the true story about a young man named Charles who was love, in love with a, a charming young lady whose name was Ava. And she was in love with Charles, but so far she had been unable, or he had been unable to persuade her to, to marry him. And so he decides he's going to have to pop the question, make the proposal, but it's going to have to be done in quite a dramatic way if she's going to respond positively. And so he sets the thing up, he invites her to lunch. They drove to the Los Angeles Coliseum, the largest sports arena on the West Coast at the time. And there in the center of the playing field where were placed a small table and two chairs, and you know what's coming, and there behind the two chairs, of course, was a, a maitre d' and showed them to the table and seated them, a waiter behind each of the chairs, apart from this little dining oasis. The whole Coliseum was empty. Tens of thousands of seats empty, just them in the middle of the field. The table was elegantly set, caviar, champagne served, salad, the main course, more champagne, and then as they were awaiting the dessert, Charles directed Ava's attention to the scoreboard at the end of the field, this huge, large electronic scoreboard. And in prearranged signal, Charles raised his glass, and on that signal, the gigantic scoreboard lights up, flashing the words, darling, Ava, will you marry me? And stunned by it all, what was she to say, but yes, and she did. Now, I don't recall my proposal to my wife being anything like that. And I certainly didn't spend that kind of money in the process of doing it, but I dare venture that it was no less effective than that that was done by Charles on that day, a much simpler, a much cheaper way to be sure, but nevertheless, I would say that it was a prelude in our case to a marriage that has outlived and outloved the marriage proposal in the midst of that stadium of 100,000 empty seats of great cost in the Olympic Coliseum. What I'm getting at is this, never question the doubt or doubt the reality of your conversion simply because it wasn't accompanied by the same blinding lights or angelic visitations or other some fantastic phenomena. The validity of conversion does not rest upon the fluff and the stuff that sometimes accompanies conversion. It rests only on the substance and the promise and the work of the Word of God that is there working that conversion experience within us. That's what it all rests with, is what God has promised and what God does. That's what conversion is. And that's what, why we can now sing, Lord, it is your work alone that I am now converted, or Satan's work in me, you have your power asserted, your mercy and your grace, which rise afresh each morn, have turned my stony heart into a heart newborn. So on this day, when we remember God's conversion of the sinner Saul, making him into Saint Paul, let us also celebrate the fact of our own conversion. Sinners who also have been made saints. And let's leave here then 
to do also what St. Paul did, let's leave here, to live the life of God's converted people. A life that outlives the life of this world. A life that has love that outloves the love of this world. A love that does more than anything can do because it's a love that also confesses a greater love. A love that confesses what Jesus Christ has done for this world. As that happens, the miracle of Straight Street still happens. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.